You're listening to audio from Redeemer Anglican Church in the urban heart of Richmond, Virginia. We are a parish committed to gospel formation for missional presence through seven essential practices. Telling the biblical story, embracing a new identity in Jesus, finding belonging in the church community, cultivating virtue through redemptive habits, understanding our context in this current cultural moment, laboring in renewed vocations for the common good, and reordering our imaginations through beauty in the arts. To learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. Our first reading comes from Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 and 2. You can find that in the Pew Bible starting on page 625, 625. And as we love to say each week, if you do not have a Bible of your own at home, please take one with you after the service as a gift from us to you. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. The word of the Lord. Friends, if you would please stand with me for the reading of the gospel. Our gospel lesson comes to us from the book of Matthew, chapter 5, just verse 3. Mercifully short. (laughs) Friends, this is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Amen. Let's be seated. Once more, good morning, church. Good morning to you all. For those of you who are new, welcome to Redeemer. Glad you're here. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Dan. I'm very grateful to serve here as a pastor. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount begins with the Beatitudes. It's probably one of his most famous teachings. Even people who don't believe in Jesus, don't follow Jesus, have probably at least heard of the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are this kind of paradox manifesto of sorts that declares that apprenticeship to the way of Jesus is not only different from the way of this world, but actually promises that which the world thinks is impossible. The Beatitudes promise something that our world says is impossible. And in the Beatitudes, we find actually not commands, but surprising statements of reality. They're not commands, they're just announcements, they're statements. And within those announcements, those statements, there's this invitation from Jesus to become his apprentice. I mean, in the Beatitudes, Jesus is essentially saying to his disciples and to any of us who would like to become his disciple, here is the counterintuitive news about how life works in my reality. Now, would you like to learn how to live according to that reality? And my hope, church family, is that as we explore each Beatitude together throughout this fall, We will not only grow deeper in our understanding, like our cognitive understanding of the way of Jesus, but we'd actually grow deeper in our practice, that we wouldn't only be astute believers, but faithful practitioners, faithful apprentices. So today, it's blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's the paradox of poverty, the paradox of poverty. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, I pray right now as we give our attention to your word that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Okay, the paradox of poverty. Three questions. What does it mean? Why is it offensive? How is it comforting? Okay, three questions. What, why, and how? What does it mean? Why is it offensive? How is it comforting? First, what does it mean? I'll begin with a story. When Josephine Bakita was eight years old, she was, tragically, kidnapped by slave traders from her home in Darfur, Sudan. And for the next 12 years of her life, she was bought and sold, traded back and forth from one cruel man to another. She was beaten. She was molested daily. And by the time she was 20 years old, she had no less than 114 permanent scars on her body that would never heal. That, that trauma caused her to actually forget her birth name. She no longer knew who she was. And so one of her owners at some point along the way nicknamed her Bakita, which in Arabic means, means lucky or fortunate or blessed. It's a moment of wicked, dark, paradoxical humor, naming a poor, kidnapped, brutalized slave girl Lucky. Who could be less lucky than her? Now, we're going to return to this story of Josephine Bakita later. Um, so just, you can kind of hold that in your mind as we continue to talk about these Beatitudes. I'm introducing this Beatitude this way because that paradoxical dark humor that caused her to be nicknamed Lucky is the same kind of paradoxical language we find in Blessed Are the Poor in Spirit. The word uh, blessed, or at least in the English word blessed that we have in our translation of the Bible is this Greek word makarios. It's a word that's notoriously tricky to translate. It doesn't really have an exact English equivalent. It kind of means like fortunate or lucky, or actually I think the best translation would be congratulations. It's an announcement, congratulations. It's not a command. And the beatitude form, blessed are the blank, because blank, like that form, that sentence, that structure, is actually um, common to both Jewish and Greek culture at this time in history, in the first century. So Jesus was not the only teacher who taught using Beatitudes. At this time in history, you find other Beatitudes like, blessed are the self-controlled, for they will escape much suffering. That's kind of logically true, right? If you're self-controlled, you're not gonna bring bad things on yourself quite as often. You're probably not gonna suffer quite as much. And we have contemporary Beatitudes today. I mean, what, what are our Beatitudes? We have things like, students, blessed are those who study hard, for they will go on to achieve much, right? Others of you, is that true? Sometimes, right? Sometimes it's true. It's great. Blessed are those who eat healthy, for they will have a higher quality of life, right? Beatitudes, there's a logical coherence to them. Jesus was unique as a rabbi because his Beatitudes were paradoxical. They weren't obviously true. There wasn't a logical coherence to them. And Jesus taught, blessed are the poor in spirit. So it's worth us asking, what, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? We read from the Gospel of Matthew this morning. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus also gives beatitudes, only in that version, he just says, blessed are the poor. And between you and me, I like that translation far less because it doesn't allow me a like white middle-class metaphorical escape hatch to make the Beatitudes sort of just about how I feel, as opposed to an objective state of being in my life. Blessed are the poor. 
So the question is, which is it? Is this about inner poverty or outer poverty? Is this about inner emotional depression and anxiety and hopelessness, or is it about external economic lack, struggle, despair. And, and for our purposes today, and I truly think this, this would be the most biblically faithful translation, it's, it's like an either or, both and option, okay? And here's how to wrap your imagination around that. Has anybody seen the film Free Solo where famous rock climber Alex Honnold ascends to the top of El Capitan in Yosemite National Park with no ropes and no support? If you want to be stressed out, for two hours, go, like, if your life is easy and you don't have enough anxiety, then go watch that. It's just two hours of don't fall, don't fall, don't fall, right? If you asked me to do a free solo ascent of El Cap, what you'd find is that I am actually both poor and poor in spirit at the very same time, internal and external. I am too poor of an athlete externally, and I'm too poor in courage internally. I'm weak and afraid. It's not a great combo. So there's the both and possibility. If you look at the cover art on the front of your liturgy that you received when you walked in, you'll find a painting there by Van Gogh. And I actually think it encapsulates the both and. The title is, um, what does the title read? Women carrying sacks of coal in the snow. There's There's an obvious external poverty and by their physical posture, and by the, by the expression on the one woman's face that you can see, there's also an internal poverty of spirit as well. There's a both-and possibility. You know, there's also an either-or possibility too, though, right? Think about this with me. Isn't it possible to be economically struggling and yet rich in spirit with joy and hope and confidence? That's possible, right? It's also possible to be very wealthy and yet crippled by anxiety and depression and despair and paranoia. And any kind of poverty, internal or external, is chaotic. There's, there's a lack of control and order. Either your emotions are chaotic and uncontrolled, or, or your, your, your structure of your life is chaotic and uncontrolled. The common thread between internal and external poverty is dependence. Dependence is the common thread. Poverty in spirit or just straight-up poverty is about dependence. I don't have enough to make it on my own. I'm not self-sufficient. I need help. Catholic theologian Henry Nouwen describes this kind of poverty this way. He writes, poverty has many forms and we have to ask ourselves, what is my poverty? Is it lack of money? Is it lack of emotional stability? Is it lack of a loving partner? Is it lack of security? Is it lack of safety? Is it lack of self-confidence? Each human being has a place of poverty. And then I love this line. And that's the place where God wants to dwell. How blessed are the poor, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 3. This means that our blessing is hidden in our poverty. We are so inclined to cover up our poverty and ignore it that we often miss the opportunity to discover God who dwells there. Let's dare to see our poverty as the land where our treasure is hidden. So it's appropriate that Jesus, in teaching this beatitude, says, blessed are the poor in spirit, and then second phrase, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what is the kingdom of heaven? The kingdom of heaven is the alternate reality inaugurated by Jesus that will one day be consummated by his return. The kingdom has therefore already started, but it's not yet complete, which means sometimes you see it and sometimes you don't. The kingdom is progressively emerging, unveiling. It's being uncovered and it's unfolding. And if you think about kingdoms, I mean, what is any kingdom? Any kingdom is the realm where 
the king is recognized and, and where people submit to the king. So what's the kingdom of heaven? It's wherever and, and whenever Jesus is recognized and submitted to as king. So what's the kingdom of heaven? It's wherever and whenever Jesus reigns. The kingdom of heaven breaks through whenever a person or a family or a church speaks and acts as if Jesus is king. So if you want the like small paragraph summary in contemporary language of blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, it might go something like this, okay? This is like Dan translation. Congratulations to those that are broken and tired and run down, hopelessly dependent on other people and who will never have enough and who do not have what it takes. You're the ones who will experience the rule and reign of Jesus in this life and in the life to come. That's blessed are the poor in spirit for this is, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so that's what it means. Why is it offensive? Now, you might already be ahead of me on this one, but let's just think through some of them. Reason number one why this beatitude is offensive is one, it offends our imagination of the good life. It offends our imaginations. Most of us, especially me, would like to be healthy, prosperous, and comfortable ever more so with every passing year. I want this year to be better than last year, right? You do too, I imagine. Who wants to have less health, less money, and to suffer more this year, right? Nobody, nobody wants that. The logic of the beatitude, and this is the part I really hate, the logic of a beatitude claims that if this is true, then its inverse is, is also true. So if blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven is true, then the inverse of that is also true, which would go something along the lines of those who thrive and flourish in this life will have a very difficult time entering the kingdom of heaven. And I do not like that. It's almost like Jesus is saying, what do you need the kingdom of heaven for if you have Lululemon joggers, single origin coffee, a well-funded Roth IRA, and a breathwork app, right? Like if life's working, you don't need another kingdom. You've got this one and you're okay with it. What do you need the kingdom of heaven for if you have a loving family, loyal friends, confidence, and optimism? Doesn't Jesus understand that I want the Richmond good life? It offends our imaginations. Reason number two, it offends our sense of purpose. You know, poverty often means disorganization, a life of reacting rather than a life of controlled planning ahead. And this is just as true emotionally and spiritually as it is economically. Poverty of any kind is chaotic. And you know what chaos prevents? Chaos prevents achievement, right? You got to get your stuff together if you're going to perform well. Chaos prevents achievement. The, the inverse of this beatitude seems to be saying that those who achieve in this life will have a very difficult time entering the kingdom of heaven. Doesn't Jesus understand and respect how hard I'm working to be an achiever? Reason number three, it offends our desires for belonging, for community. This is like offensive to, the, to our, our ideas about what makes a good community healthy. You know, Jesus told a story in Luke chapter 18 about two people who go to church to pray. And the story goes something like this. Two men went to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed, God, thank you I'm not like other people, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes, to all that I, uh, tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus ends the story by saying, that second person went home justified rather than the first. 
Now, the problem with the story is that the Pharisee, according to the story, lived a respectable, well-ordered life of virtue and responsibility. He's good for society. And the tax collector lived a selfish, deceitful life as a leech on society. He's bad for the neighborhood. So who do you want as a neighbor? Doesn't Jesus understand that our community will thrive and flourish if we have more Pharisees and less tax collectors? It offends our desire for community. Reason number four, it offends our sense of identity because it is so embarrassing to be a receiver and not a giver, right? Who do you want to be in the equation, a receiver or a giver? The poor in spirit, though, are those who are dependent, not those who are independent. The poor and the poor in spirit have no disposable income, no free time to give, no emotional energy to expend on helping others. They're just not very productive. Um, It's interesting. There is ancient Hebrew wisdom from the first century on how to engage those who are struggling with poverty. And I actually think that wisdom applies just as much to today as it did back then. And it goes like this. It has four categories of how to help people who are poor. Category number one or level one of charity, is to anonymously help somebody get a job. This is level one because the person being helped doesn't even know they're being helped, right? So there's no loss of dignity there. They don't even know they're getting assistance. Level two of charity, according to ancient Hebrew wisdom, is to directly help a person get a job. They know they're being helped, but they're not getting any handouts. They're just getting assistance in being able to like take care of themselves. Level three of charity is giving an anonymous gift to somebody. They're getting a free gift, a free handout, but they don't know who it's from, so they can't really be indebted to that person. And then level four, the lowest form of charity, according to ancient Hebrew wisdom, is to give someone a direct gift. This is the lowest form of charity because it gives to people who can't provide anything for themselves. They contribute nothing to the equation. And it leaves them completely indebted to the giver. It's humiliating. It's offensive. It leaves the receiver completely at the mercy of the giver. Nobody wants to be on the receiving end of the most extreme form of charity. And this beatitude is saying that that person, the person who is at the lowest point of impoverishment, that person is blessed. And so it's like this beatitude is claiming to offer some comfort. And so it's Even in in the offense, it's probably worth us asking the question, what kind of comfort is here? How is this comforting? Let's explore that. Here's the first way the beatitude is comforting. It's comforting in that it offers solidarity. It offers solidarity with the one who is giving the beatitude. Christ himself lived a life of relative poverty. People asked Jesus for lots of things. You know what they never asked him for? Money. (laughs) Why? They knew he didn't have any. Christ lived a life of relative poverty. Christ was physically impoverished. His body was broken. The cross broke the body of Jesus. Christ was socially impoverished. He was degraded, humiliated, embarrassed, mocked. Jesus was brought so low that he couldn't provide for himself anymore. The one who, just think about this logically, the one who created water had to say the words, I'm thirsty. Jesus could not provide for himself anymore. Jesus was impoverished relationally. Not only did his disciples and his friends run away, but he was abandoned by God the Father. He had to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And death is always the final chapter of poverty. 
Like the story of poverty always ends in death. It's why the words, the end, are the saddest words in any language. That's why being poor in spirit is so devastating. You're dying on the inside. It's why economic poverty is so devastating. You're living right on the edge of death. And Jesus took both of these forms of poverty and he took them all the way to the bottom. Jesus took them all the way to the end. So let me just talk to you for a second. You think God doesn't understand your depression, your anxiety, your inner pain? Y'all, Jesus knows exactly how you feel. You think God doesn't understand debt, doesn't understand homelessness, doesn't understand hunger or thirst, too cold in the winter, too hot in the summer? Jesus knows exactly how you feel. Jesus has gone lower than you. As far as you've sunk down, he's gone lower than that. That is the comfort of his solidarity, that no matter how deep and dark your particular pit is right now, you know Christ is lower than you. But here's the thing. Jesus doesn't just share your poverty. He actually lifts you up out of it. You see, if the cross was all that happened, then Jesus could offer you a little bit of comfort in the comfort of solidarity, but no real help. You're in the pit together, but you're still there, right? But no, he offers more than that. The poverty of body and spirit didn't overcome Jesus. He actually overcame that poverty. And that's the paradox of the cross. In the moment of defeat, there was triumph. The victim became the victor. The cross looked like the end, but we know it was actually a new beginning. And so through the paradox of the cross, Jesus offers to turn your defeat into victory, your loss into gain, your suffering into glory. This is what the Apostle Paul is getting at when he writes in Romans chapter 5, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Remember those four levels of charity in according to ancient Hebrew wisdom? How there's like level one, you know, anonymously helping somebody find a job. Level two, directly helping them find a job. Level three, giving an anonymous gift. And then level four, lowest of all, like directly giving somebody a gift. How you're only supposed to do that in the most extreme and urgent and desperate of situations. You only do that with the poorest of the poor who can't provide anything for themselves, who can't contribute anything to the equation. How it leaves those kind of people completely indebted to the giver. That's what God has done for us. We are the poorest of the poor, contributing nothing to our own salvation other than the need for it and being open to receiving it. You see, listen, when you realize that you're weak, like when you realize that you're the weak person, when you realize that you're the poor person, that you need the lowest and most base form of charity, that you don't have what it takes, that you're not enough, that you're not gonna make it, that you're dependent, that, you're, that you need help, then the beatitude starts applying to you. And you know what that means? That means you're blessed. Then the beatitude applies to you. Question, what do you contribute towards your own salvation? Answer, nothing except your need and your openness to receive it. That's why later in the service, we're gonna sing this old hymn called Come Ye Sinners. There's this, this language in the third verse. You can like flip ahead and see it if you want to. In verse three, it, right, it reads, let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. That's what's required to come to God. Actually knowing and acknowledging your own poverty, your own need. 
This is, the, this is the point of comfort. The gospel paradox of poverty is that through the gospel, the most needy and dependent people end up with all the riches in the end. That's how it goes. And that is so very different from the comfort of capitalism, where if you outcompete your neighbor, you get blessed and they don't, right? It's not the comfort of Marxism, where if you overthrow your rich neighbor and take all his stuff, then you get blessed and he doesn't, right? It's not the comfort of therapy, where you have to learn coping mechanisms to deal with your own poverty of spirit so that you stop feeling unblessed and start feeling more blessed. And it's not the comfort of traditional religion, where you must overcome your spiritual poverty with willpower and discipline to be rewarded by God with blessing. It's not any of those. And please understand, like, I'm not trying to throw shade on capitalism or Marxism or traditional religion or therapy. Like, each of these have their merits, that's great, but none of them can offer the poor and the poor in spirit what Jesus can offer. In Jesus, God has become poor and poor in spirit, and he has done so to lift you up in resurrection and to give you the riches of his kingdom as a free gift. So you see how the gospel is different? Do you see how the paradox of the gospel works so differently from anything else in this world? Like, gospel comfort is a paradox. It's impossible in the natural world. It never just naturally happens. Gospel comfort is offensive. It says that you're poor and that you need the most extreme form of charity. Gospel comfort brings you into solidarity with God himself. God's not condemning you for being a chaotic mess. Listen, he is not condemning you for being a chaotic mess. He is entering your chaotic mess and becoming chaotically messy. Gospel comfort is effective. It's not just words. It's real help both right now to lift you out of your impoverished spirit and hope and also in the future to remake the world into a place where poor people become rich. Now, as we kind of conclude here, let's make something very, very clear. It is one thing to believe in the paradox of poverty. It is quite another to practice it. So the invitation here is not primarily believe this. The invitation is, Live this, practice this. How do you practice the paradox of poverty? It starts in prayer and it starts in the posture of prayer that we have. Psalm 51 reads, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. It means coming to God in confession over and over again. And those of you who have been followers of Jesus for a long time will know that the more time you spend practicing confession, the more you become aware of your need for confession. <laughs> That's how it works, right? You don't get it off your chest. You open up that door of confession and then you realize how much is really in there. It starts with prayer and confession and then goes on to giving, giving away resources. Sometimes that's directly to those who are economically poor with whom you have a relationship. Other times it's giving directly to those who are poor and those who are poor in spirit through the ministry of the church. I think we see this most clearly in the early church in the first century, where the very first followers of Jesus bring all of their resources, like all of them, and bring them and put them at the feet of the apostles. And that the posture they're embodying in that moment is one of radical interdependence. None of them is saying, now I'm gonna protect what I need for me and then I'll like skim off any extra off the top and like give that as a charity donation. No, it's bringing everything you have to the church and saying, we are going to depend on each other here. 
It's a life of radical interdependence. You see, when people start acting this way and living this way, giving away their resources to those who are poor and poor in spirit, you know what they become? They become in that moment a foretaste of the kingdom of heaven. When you bless those who are poor or poor in spirit, you become a foretaste of the kingdom of God. You are reminding that person in that moment, the kingdom of heaven is yours. And I'm giving you just an appetizer to that right now. And when the church does that collectively together, then the church becomes to the world a foretaste of the kingdom of God. It starts in prayer. It goes on in giving. It actually expands in serving. And I put that one next because there are some of us who find it actually far easier to give away dollars than to give away time. Your time is actually a more precious commodity to you than your dollars. And so for some of you, the next step is actually not just giving dollars, but actually opening up your calendar and allowing your calendar to become slightly less controlled and orderly in order to bless those who are poor in spirit. It then goes on even further for some of us into asking for help. Because up until this point, these are all things you can kind of actively do and feel pretty good, pretty good about doing. But asking for help is the kicker for some of us because we feel much more comfortable in the driver's seat of being the giver than the passenger seat of being the receiver. And for some of us, that's the shift that's got to happen. This is how we begin to practice the paradox of poverty. And as we begin to take up these practices, you know what happens? All of those things we had problems with earlier, those offenses, they start to change. They're transformed. These practices transform our imagination. Your idea about what the good life is and is not. Maybe the good life isn't about avoiding pain and seeking comfortable, pleasurable experiences. Maybe the good life is about joining Jesus and entering into the poverty of other people, even when it's uncomfortable, even painful at times. It changes our sense of purpose. Maybe my goal in life isn't to achieve for myself, but to bless others. And maybe in seeking to bless others, your life will become less organized, more chaotic, less under control. What if knowing your purpose and being sure and certain of your purpose in this life meant less control and not more? It changes your sense of belonging. It transforms the way you experience other people's poverty. You're no longer, you are no longer disgusted or offended by the poverty of other people's lives. This becomes the wellspring, not just of compassion, but of like actual empathy. The economically poor person is your neighbor. They're just like you. The poor in spirit are your neighbors. They're just like you. They're not a charity case for you. You're a charity case for God. <laughs> so nobody, how could anybody be beneath you? Nobody's beneath you. It changes your sense of identity. Pride just isn't an option anymore. It makes you humble. You can't take anything for granted anymore. I don't deserve the good things that I have. God doesn't owe me for my good behavior, but he loves me despite my bad behavior. And this makes me humble. It makes you humble. And yet still kind of secure in who you are. And y'all, this is not a new idea. It's a very old idea. Theologian from hundreds of years ago, Jonathan Edwards, put it this way. He writes, a truly Christian love, either to God or to people, is a humble, brokenhearted love. The desires of the saints, however earnest, are humble desires. Their hope is a humble hope. Their joy, even when it's unspeakable and full of glory, is a humble, brokenhearted kind of joy. It leaves the Christian poor in spirit, more like a little child, and more disposed to a universal lowliness of behavior. 
We started with a very difficult story about Josephine Bakita. And some of you have still been thinking about her ever since we named her story in the very beginning. Let's go back to that sweet girl. That slave girl nicknamed Lucky was eventually sold to an Italian government official who lived in Venice. And through a series of circumstances, she was introduced to a group of women who served as nuns at a convent there. And the sisters cared for her and they tried to protect her. And they also shared the love of Jesus with her. And through their help, the Italian courts ruled that her enslavement was illegal and Bagita was set free. You know what she did? Immediately, she asked to be baptized and then she joined the convent and became a sister there. And she turned right around and started serving the poor. And she did so for the next 42 years, the rest of her life. And you know what she said? This is amazing. She said, quote, I am definitively loved. And whatever happens to me, I am awaited by this love. And so I am blessed. That little girl, kidnapped as a child, traumatized to the point of forgetting her own name. The definition of poor in spirit. Wickedly nicknamed lucky, wickedly nicknamed blessed, was rescued by the love of Jesus and the people of Jesus. And she became a person who gave the love of Jesus to others who were poor in spirit. In the end, she ended up saying, you know what? I am lucky. And she kept the name. And Josephine Bagita knew that though she was poor in spirit, she was blessed by Jesus. And I pray that we know the same. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bring our poverty to you and ask for your blessing. Lord Jesus, thank you that you became poor and poor in spirit, and we might know solidarity with you. But not only that, you have lifted us up in your resurrection and given us hope and a future. Lord, may we know your blessing even in the midst of our poverty right now. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. To connect with our team or to learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. We look forward to knowing you. Go in peace.